Well, how about we talk about Jesus today? My favorite topic, and one of the things that makes this house unique is that it's not hard to find Jesus here. And I will tell you, there are some places where it is a little difficult to get to the Jesus part. You come in and go, I like, can we get to the Jesus stuff? Can we wade through all this other stuff? So let's get to the Jesus stuff today. It's my favorite topic. I love to talk about Jesus. I love to read his stories and read about him. And what I found is that no matter what you read, and no matter, if it's a gospel story, and it looks like it's about somebody, maybe it looks like it's about the thief that, or the, the guy that gets beat up on the road to, from Jericho, uh, or if it's a, a guy getting healed of blindness, or it's a woman with a bleeding issue touching him. It looks like it's about a person, but if you keep reading, it's always about Jesus. That's what I love about those stories is that you get to see yourself in the text if you'll pay attention. Sometimes you're going to see yourself and you don't want to see yourself. We're going to read one of those today and you're going to see yourself, or at least if you're honest, and you're going to go, uh, I'd rather be the other character. And sometimes you are the other character. But my point is, is no matter where you fall in the story, it always ends up circling back to Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel is it ceases to be about you and it starts to be about Jesus. I think a good place to start today is to say that it is always about you, but it always ends up being about Jesus. Okay, this whole thing is about you. God did this because you are here. He did what he did at Calvary because of you. So when people go, this isn't about you, this is about Jesus, that's a little disingenuous. Of course it's about you. God loves you. God has promoted you. God has been paying attention to you. And the whole gospel story is about you. Because God loves us so much, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If that isn't about you, then what's the point of the cross? But it doesn't stop with you. It keeps going into the resurrected Christ. And then the story becomes not just about how I'm living, but about the Christ that lives in me. So when you come into the house of God, it is one thing to see you in the message. You need to. If you can't see you in the message, you're probably only going to see your neighbor. And how many of you know that's not the way to listen to preaching? Boy, I wish brother so-and-so had been here today. He really needed that sermon. If that's ever crossed your mind, you're listening wrong. Right? So the sermon can be about you, the topic can be about you, the text can be about you, and it needs to be about you. It's better to be about you than to be about her. It's better for it to be about you than to be about him or so-and-so who's not here. But it doesn't stop there. You don't go back to your car all about you. Because the point of the gospel is though it's about you and your condition and your failure and your sin and your fault and your stuff, it doesn't stop there. It circles back to Jesus so that when you leave, you leave with knowledge about you and knowledge about Jesus and those two things coming together and the wrestling match that happens as you adjust to the Jesus that's working on you. Okay, and so I can't, I can get up here today and read text and we're going to and tell a story and we're going to and you're going to see you in some characters and you're going to see Jesus in some characters. But at the end of it, what we do is we end up doing what we can with us in the story and the Jesus that's in the story. And I can't make you do anything with it. So heads up, I can't make you do anything with this story. I've been, I've failed a long time along the way in ministry thinking that one of my jobs when I get into the pulpit is to try to change people. I have given up that proposition. You do not change people. How many of you figured that out in your marriage? You figured that out raising your kids. You figured that out with your coworker. You don't change people. You might have to adjust to people. You might have to change, but you don't get other people to change, right? That's the compromise that starts in here. 
So I can't change you and I don't want to today. I want to see what Christ can do when you and him meet in a story. And when you and him meet in a story, what will you do with Jesus? And that isn't solved on Sunday morning. I think, I love, I love altar experiences, and we've all had them. But I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on light switch revelations in the church. I'm going to go forward to that altar and I'm going to get exactly what I need. And in some ways it almost lets us off the hook. We go up to the altar, we do our prayer, we say amen, they lay hands on us, we go back and we live our lives, and then we think about it at next altar service. And I think it's much better that we leave wrestling with the text than we leave with just a light switch revelation. And so be prepared to let this soak into your soul today. The lectionary gospel reading in the church around the world today comes from Luke chapter 10. What I mean by that is as the church reads the gospel lectionary, where do we fall within the reading of the gospels? That's exactly where I want to fall today. In Luke chapter 10, in a story that we're all familiar with, I want to begin reading in verse 38. And I want to just go ahead and read out the chapter. It's not that long, just a few verses. One little story about Jesus and about an encounter that he has with two sisters And I want you to place yourself in the story today. You're going to be able to find yourself a little bit on one side and a little bit on the other side. And if you can't, we'll help you. Because I think we need to find ourselves somewhere in this story. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village. And of course the he here is Jesus. And a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. You can tell something goes south when the, Bible, when the translators use a conjunction that's a rebuttal conjunction, the word but. So we're connecting the previous material, but when there's a but, there's always a turn, right? Like, you're doing a really good job today, but, and you go, oh, here it comes. You couldn't just compliment me. You had to go ahead and... So we know something's turning south when we get to the butt in the middle of the story. And so the turn happens when Martha is distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And I think this is pretty brazen on the part of Martha. She asked Jesus if he cares, and she asked Jesus if he'll go ahead and tell Mary what to do. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. And I want to start today with this thought. I think Martha is sometimes unduly put upon in this story. When we read this and we teach this in the church, we almost always cut Martha down quickly because she should have been sitting at the feet of Jesus, but she's in the kitchen preparing and trying to work and do things. But So I want to start by just saying this isn't an anti-Martha message. Uh, I'm not out here to attack Martha in this story because frankly, I don't think that's what this text is doing, is attacking Martha because she's cumbered about and she's distracted in the kitchen. I think Martha's actually doing what all of us would do if Jesus came to our house. Um, It's hard for me to believe that we wouldn't prepare him a meal, 
it's hard for me to believe that we wouldn't try to prepare the best meal that we have and that we wouldn't try to take care of him while he's there. So let's just get off Martha's back for a moment and just say that she's doing what most of us would do if Jesus came to our living room. And if that be the case, then there must be something more going on in the story. Otherwise, Jesus hates hospitality. And that's the whole point of the story is, I don't want you to be hospitable to me. I don't need a meal when I come to your house. And I don't think this is an anti-hospitality story. Also, to remind you that the story starts with you, but it always circles back to Jesus. So there's hint, hint. This isn't going to be about Martha as much or about Mary as much as it is about the heart of the Jesus that's in the story. And so you know that all this is is setting us up to get to the end where Jesus does what it is that Jesus does so well. But on the way there, let's deal with Martha. Mary's easy. Honestly, in the story, we don't even really ever meet Mary. We just hear about what she's doing. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's doing the thing that is most needful. What we assume is that Jesus is sitting in the room and there's a crowd that's gathered around him as he speaks and people are sitting nearby and they're not in a culture that has chairs and recliners and rockers. So most people are sitting in the floor, maybe sitting on an item. And we find that Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus doing what Jesus calls the most needful thing. And sitting at his feet means that she's taking in his work words as Jesus pours out words those that water of clean uh, uh, that those words of water of, of cleanliness that washes us off with the water of his word as Paul said Mary's soaking that up she's taking that in we're gonna leave Mary there for a moment because the text has one of the great ironies of the English translation in it in this moment because your old King James says is that Martha was cumbered about with much serving I think the new King James we read said Martha was distracted and the word distracted or cumbered, depending on what translation you're reading, is from an English, or from the Greek word that means to draw out, but it's in the, it, it, it's a, a word that in the tense that it's used in passive voice in the Greek, it means she's over-occupied with much serving. Let's say it that way. Martha is over-occupied with much serving. And here's the great irony in the English, or at least when you move back to the Greek. Distracted with much serving... The word serving is the same word that is used in the rest of the New Testament for the word ministry. Martha is distracted with much ministry. And the reason I say that's ironic is because how can you be over-occupied with ministry? Right? I mean, ministry is something that we should be occupied with. And by ministry, get rid of pulpit ministry for a moment because almost no one in this room has a pulpit ministry. And if all ministry means is preaching, then this story doesn't matter, and we shouldn't even mention it. But ministry has almost... Let me, let me pause here, start over, because I, I want to pull you in with this statement. I want you to hear this. Ministry has almost nothing to do with preaching. Ministry has almost nothing to do with teaching. Ministry has almost nothing to do with exposit, being an expository bringer of the good news. Ministry is rarely a proclamation. Ministry is an action of love. You minister when you love your enemy. You minister when you turn the other cheek. You minister when you give a cup of cold water in his name. I'm just quoting Jesus, by the way. These are Jesus' definition of kingdom ministry. Lord, when did we ever see this happen to you? And we did it. And he goes, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. In other words, you were doing ministry and you didn't know you were doing ministry. Or in other words, you were not doing ministry 
when you were not doing the things you were saved and called to do. And so ministry isn't something you do on a Sunday. It isn't something you even always do when you're aware of it. It's something you do all the time when you move your hands and you open your mouth. You minister. How many of you realize you can minister negative? So if you speak evil over people, you minister negativity. You proclaim, to ministers to make a proclamation. And you don't have to make that proclamation with your mouth. You can make that proclamation with your love or with your hands or with your actions. But if you speak negative over those and you curse those and you turn against those, you minister negative. So you're ministering all the time whether you know it or not. We're going to assume in this moment that Martha's ministry is at least from a pure place because Jesus is visiting her house. She just wants Jesus to have a good meal. She wants him to be relaxed, and she wants him to have a great time. And you want to treat someone in a way that they want to come back. And so that's how Martha's treating ministry. But Jesus says, you are distracted by much serving, or as the Greek says, you are overdoing it with ministry. Now, how is it possible then to overdo it with ministry? I really want to talk to you a little bit today about managing distractions because I think what's happening in Martha in this story is that Martha has taken the good and the good has begun to consume what she does. She's become laser focused on doing the right thing or laser focused on making a difference or laser focused on serving to the point that it has become a distraction. I want to use that today not only from the spiritual side, but also from the secular. The secular is kind of obvious, so let's start there. You live in a world of distraction, right? I mean, you don't have to turn far until you got something that can distract you. It's so bad that we have a hard time doing one thing anymore. If you'll notice, what we used to call multitasking, which is where you could do two things at one time, is now the only way we can keep from being bored. People can't just watch television. They have to watch television and surf on their phone at the same time because they're going to put a commercial up there. And you can't watch the commercial. That, that'll take 30 seconds of your life. You'll never get back. But you could scroll Facebook the entire time the commercials are on. So then you'd at least know what's going on in the world and you could stay interconnected. And we've gotten to where we, uh, distractions are easy. They're everywhere. They're, in our, they're on our phone. Uh, distractions are in front of us. You can't drive down the highway anymore without a digital billboard changing four times in the two miles it takes you to arrive at that billboard because, God forbid, you have to read the same one for two whole miles while you're driving down the road. You need it to visually be distracting at all times. We do it with music. We do it with entertainment. We do it with people. It's difficult in some places to carry on a conversation with people without them glancing away and needing something else to do because face-to-face conversation doesn't stimulate. It's not exciting enough. The story's boring. I got something else going on. I'll take this call. Oh, I can talk to you and text at the same time. All of the things that sort of take up our lives and consume us can easily become distractions. This isn't about getting rid of those things in your life. It is about managing them in a way in which you realize that they can become something that you're cumbered about with, and they can become something that you're taken away with. For purposes of everyone's sanity and peace in this room, I'll leave that alone, because you've had enough of the secular distractions. You've already gotten a little antsy on me as you slowly reached for your phone. So we'll go spiritual on you, because what Martha is, is cumbered about with much serving. She's overly distressed, overly distracted with ministry. So let's spiritualize it for a moment. I know we're in a grace community where we've shunned religion 
as a definition of our faith, and I think we should shun religion as a definition of our faith, because if religion is the endless pursuit of God, you realize that in Christ you have found Him and He has found you. And therefore, you don't call what you do a religion. I know outside of what we do, we would call it a religion because it's still us looking upward. And therefore, in, by, by definition, it is a religion. But for the most part, what we've done is we've moved away from the formulas of performance and we've moved away from the formulas of doing and we've moved away from, from our works to determine our salvation, our works to determine our righteousness. And all of that's wonderful. And I, I don't think you can move... I don't think you can move too deep into the river of grace, personally. But. What I think can happen is that you can celebrate Mary to the point that you miss the point of the Martha story. And in circles of grace, we have celebrated Mary to the point that we've almost rebuked Martha. Because Martha is doing something and Mary is doing nothing. And here's what we like to say in grace. What you should do when you come to Jesus is nothing. Just sit at the feet of Jesus and do nothing and then receive all of Jesus' goodness. And we love the Mary and Martha story because it's, we think it's a good example of what's wrong with all those religious mixture churches that are out here working so hard for God when they ought to be in a rest-filled church sitting at the feet of Jesus and taking in all of the goodness of God. And I think, I think that what we need to do with that story is realize that we need to be merry in our approach to the goodness of Jesus, but we don't need to curse Martha because when we curse Martha, we're really cursing ourselves for every moment that we function in ministry and that ministry starts to define what we do and who we are rather than the relationship that we've cultivated with Jesus and resting at his feet. I don't want to get rid of Martha. And neither does Jesus. I want Martha to begin to realize that it isn't about what she can do. It's about who Jesus is and he wants to pull her into a deeper relationship with him, into the deeper waters of his love. I also want you to notice that Jesus does not confront Martha about what she's doing. It's Martha that confronts Jesus about what Mary's doing. One of the first things that we have to realize in our journey with God is that this is not about my relationship in comparison to your relationship. What I have with Jesus does not need to be stacked up in any way with what you have with Jesus. If I could get rid of that, I could stop judging you. Most of our judgment is not because we think other people are wrong. It's because we want justification for the areas we think are right in us. And so we can judge in other people what they're doing, what they're saying, how they're living, so that we can stack up something in our lives we're carrying condemnation over and think, well, it's not as bad as old so-and-so and what he or she is doing. And never is your relationship with Christ to be in any way compared or paralleled with the relationship of your ne- that your neighbor has with Christ. And so the first thing that Martha does is bring Mary into the story, and Jesus tries to push Mary out of the story because your relationship with Christ has nothing to do with what someone else is doing with Christ. Listen, Grace Church. 
We are neither closer to God or farther from God if we can identify mixture in every church in the county. It doesn't make us closer to Him or more at rest with Him because we become police of good theology and polices of bad theology. Because when we can spot what's wrong with Mary, all it does is show us that perhaps we are still cumbered about with much ministry, that we are still the one who has the issue, and I said we, not you. Because I can't preach the story about Martha without seeing Paul White in there, because ministry's been my life. It's all I've known. I mean from the time I was a kid, when you're raised in a pastor evangelist home, you go into ministry young, it's the only thing I've really known, it's all I've ever really done, and it becomes easy to determine your value based on it. It becomes easy to determine your worth based upon it. It becomes easy to judge others, whether or not they're doing ministry or doing ministry correctly. I've been down that road too. Who's right in this and who's wrong in this? And I realize how many times I've come to Jesus with Mary's name on my lips. How many times I've come to the Lord looking for theological answers to dispute Mary? How much of my Bible I read to argue with the other guy about his Bible verse? How much I doubled down on my own faith just to prove to other people that it was right? Rather than a relationship at the feet of Jesus... I have to approach Jesus by putting someone else's name or doctrine or ideology or theology on my lips. How many of you realize that when that happens, all we do is we rally around who we dis what we dislike and who we dislike and who we exclude? Because if it takes you pointing out what's wrong in the world for you to get excited about what's right with Jesus, you are a Martha. And for far too many of us in the church, the only thing we can really agree on is what we won't vote for. The only thing we can really agree on is who's of the devil and what side God's on. And if that's the only thing we can come to a consensus on, we might be a Martha. If I can borrow some Jeff Foxworthy here for a moment, you know, you might be a redneck if... Maybe you're a Martha if the only way you can really get excited about the things of God is to point out what's wrong with Mary. We've all been there. I'm not proud to tell you that I've had whole sermons develop around what I thought was wrong with somebody else's theology. I've had whole series come out of the need to refute somebody else's idea. It took me a long time to realize that Jesus was calling me off to the side to say, don't worry about Mary and her relationship with me. You don't know what I'm doing in them. You don't know what I'm doing in her. Paul, you're just on the journey. You're on the journey, and yet you think you know where everybody else is on the journey. And all you really see is what's right in front of you and what's right behind you. You don't see the curve that's ahead. You don't see the valley that they're in. You don't see the mountain they're trying to climb up. And because of that, the only relationship that Martha has in this story with Jesus is doing stuff for him and talking about other people. And I wonder if we would lose the zeal if we lost our topic or we lost 
our definitions or we lost our ideologies. And I don't know the answer for you, but I know the answer for me for too long was yes. I would lose something to talk about. I would lose something to be excited about. I would lose something to rally around. And so I too need to return to the feet of Jesus. I need to return to his feet until he's the first thing that I see when I walk into the spiritual living room. It's amazing how when the believers in the the American church come together, we can all rally around talking about the weather. We can all rally around talking about politics. Yes, we can almost all rally around talking about politics because you're going to the same church with people that view politics the way we do. That's oftentimes how we pick our churches as well. Not just how we pick our Jesus, but also how we pick our friends is depending on the bumper sticker on their car. Because we know we can approach them if they've got so-and-so's name on there, but if they got some of that other stuff, well, we're probably not going to land in the same spot. My point in that being is we've already got some pre-mixed stuff to talk about when we come into most churches, and it's seventh, eighth, or ninth on the list is Christ crucified and resurrected. You got to wade through weather and cardinal scores and governor so and so and God knows what. And then finally we get down to, okay, it's worship time. Let's talk about Jesus. And listen, it's why it's so easy to spot the other because it can't possibly be me. And so in the story, let's admit for a moment that we are Martha, cumbered about, distracted easily. When we can do that, we can find an answer. And the answer starts first with me. And by me, I mean just turn the finger on yourself for a moment, if you would. Start there. Let's start there. And Martha comes to Jesus and questions Jesus' concern. When this became reality for me as I really worked through this story, one of the things I realized is that it's not unique to Martha for us to question whether or not Jesus cares when we're not having everything happen to us the way we expect it ought to happen to us. In fact, questioning whether or not God cares is the default position of people as they're cumbered about with much serving. One of the first ways you can know that you're becoming distracted with much serving is when you start to ask the Lord if he's going to show up or if he even cares. Why are these people allowed to do this? Why is this thing allowed to go on? Do you not care? Martha says to Jesus, don't you care that Mary isn't helping me in the kitchen? Now, I want to answer for a moment as if I were there and not Jesus. Spoiler alert, I'm not nearly as good at this as Jesus, all right? If I'm there and Martha says, don't you care that Mary's not helping me, I would say, not at all. I couldn't care less who's helping you. It's your house. You take care of it. You want Mary to help you? Go tell Mary to help you. You two get in a fight right here for all I care. I'm staying out of it. This ain't my house. This ain't my fight. I don't want it. I don't need it. That's how I would answer, but I'm not as good as Jesus. That's a given. There's also a part of me, the other way, that would, if, if I were literally in your house and you came to me and I'm, I'm talking in your living room to people about Jesus and you called me off to the side and said, hey, I really need some help in this kitchen. We're not going to have this meal done on time. I know Paul White. I know what I would do. I would cut the teaching short and come help you serve. 
I'd be like, hey, let's, let's, we can teach later. I don't want you in here working all by yourself. You're killing yourself. This is unnecessary. Here, I'll help you serve. I don't think I'm better than Jesus because I answer that. I think I'm just weak for your emotions. I think I don't want to hurt your feelings. All right? I, I, think I, I think I don't want to take too much space, so I'll acquiesce to what it is you want. Instead, Jesus doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't say, I don't care. You guys go fight it out. But he also doesn't say, oh, forget healing the sick, raising the dead. Let's go in here and serve biscuits. He doesn't do that either. Instead, he says, Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. Because you think, well, who cares? He says, Martha, Martha. I want to pause there for a moment and bring two things together that cross, that cross the timeline of the Bible. Number one, when things don't work the way we want, a lot of times we wonder if God cares. That's a universal question. It's the thing that Elijah asks in, in 1 Kings 19 when he's on the run from Jezebel and he's in the cave, remember? And God comes to him and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah goes, I'm the only one you got left. It's a roundabout way of going, don't you care about your prophet? I mean, I'm all you got. I'm the only one that's doing what I'm doing. And God, there comes an earthquake and there comes a fire. And the rocks tremble. And God's not in any of it. And then there's a still small voice. And Elijah recognizes the voice of God. And God comes back to him again and goes, Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah, unimpressed says the same thing, don't you care, I'm the only one you got. And that costs Elijah's ministry, he's done. God moves on from Elijah to Elisha because if you can't realize that the highest form of success in God is the ability to hear the still small voice in the middle of distraction, let me say that again. If you can't realize that the highest gift you can have in Christ is the ability to hear the still small voice in the midst of distraction then it might be time to move on, or at least for purposes of us living this out, it might be time to go sit at the feet of Jesus and realize that hearing the voice of God in the midst of distractions is one of the greatest gifts you can have. But Elijah missed that. The disciples are on the boat with Jesus. Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. They get in the boat. They're sailing across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is tired, so he decides to take a nap. And he lays in the back of the boat with his head on a pillow, and he snoozes as a massive storm comes in. Now, about 75% of the disciples are professional fishermen. They've seen a lot of storms on the Sea of Galilee, but they've never seen a storm like this. There's something hellish about this storm. There's something deadly about this storm. It's as if it's from another world. And these men who have spent their lives on the water become afraid and begin to throw water out of the boat, and they go wake Jesus up, and what question do they ask him? Don't you care? That we're about to drown. What a question to ask the creator of the universe. Don't you care? And Jesus stands up and rebukes the storm, which tells me not all storms are from God because you don't rebuke your own father. And it tells me that Jesus' first operation in your life is not to rebuke everything that's wrong with you. It's to teach you how to rest with him in the boat. Because if you want to get to the other side, don't, get, don't become a professional devil rebuker. Become a professional rester next to Jesus. That's, that's some good sound theology, by the way. 
Here's, here's a tip. If God speaks to you and says, let's go to the other side, how many of you know you're going to make it to the other side? I don't care if the storm comes straight out of the pits of hell. You probably ought to take a nap next to Jesus. Jesus isn't going to be caught off guard. Like you and him show up at the gates of heaven and he goes, sorry about that. I really thought we were going to make it. I, my bad, I, I, I was so tired. And I just needed a couple of minutes and I overdid it because I set my alarm, didn't go off. No, you can rest next to Jesus. The question then is, Lord, don't you care? Sounds like a stupid question. Of course he cares because he's Jesus. But we still ask it because our expectations aren't being met. Because God's not doing exactly what we thought God ought to do. He's not saying what we thought he ought to say. He's not giving us what we thought we ought to get. And so we say, don't you care? And that's Martha saying to Jesus, don't you care that Mary won't come in here and help me? And Jesus doesn't say, no, I don't care. And Jesus doesn't say, yes, I do care. Instead, Jesus does the second thing, the final thing I want you to think on. The other thing that crosses the span of the Bible. If Bible characters keep asking God, don't you care? There's something else that keeps happening in the Bible. Ten times combined in both the Old and the New Testament. A name is declared twice. Abraham pulls the knife back at the top of the mountain to slaughter Isaac, to offer him as a sacrifice because God said, give me your son, your only son. And as the knife goes in the air, it booms out of heaven. Abraham, Abraham. You got to say it twice because it's a pretty big deal. I don't want you to kill your own son. Abraham, Abraham. And that trend then develops through the Bible. God says it when he wants to call Jacob back. Jacob, Jacob. He says it to a kid, little prepubescent Samuel, who's asleep off next to the door of the temple. And God wakes him in the middle of the night and goes, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel becomes the next great judge of Israel. Jesus says it on his way to the cross when Simon Peter tries to rebuke him and tell him he can't go to the cross. And Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift you like wheat. Sometimes the name is cried out because we're passionate for the other person and our heart breaks over them. David screams, Absalom, Absalom, when he hears that his son has died. The very son who has chased him and tried to overthrow him. And yet his heart breaks because it's his own kid. And Jesus says it standing outside of Jerusalem on his way to the cross. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you in as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not let me. When you use a name twice, it's to elevate someone to the knowledge that they're missing. And when you use a name twice, it's to weep over the condition of the person. But for those ten times in the Bible, it's always screamed out of passion and love. Jesus, with nails in his hands and his feet, hangs between heaven and earth and says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He quotes Psalms 22. And he borrows the motif of repeating twice the thing that matters the most. And when Jesus speaks to Martha in Luke chapter 10, he says, Martha, Martha. And while we just think it's Jesus repeating himself to a Hebrew in the first century, What it meant was, I matter. 
I'm valuable. I'm so valuable. He says it twice. So wherever you are today, just remember this. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus and we celebrate her and we should. It's where I'd like to be in the story, wouldn't you? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. But I'm not always there. I'm cumbered about with doing good stuff. And I'm distracted. Sometimes I'm distracted by the stuff of the world so much that I can't lock my mind in where it needs to be. I know you're not that way. I'm that way. You don't get distracted at all. I get it. Sometimes I'm so distracted with doing the right thing, with doing ministry, maybe producing a podcast, preparing a sermon, counseling somebody through the grief or whatever the need or the issue that they have. I'm so distracted that I realize I haven't spent any time at the feet of Jesus today. I haven't really dwelled on him today. I haven't had a moment where I opened the word and just soaked in the text. I'll tell you what happens in ministries. We get so distracted with building sermons, we forget to just read for our own self. Because I read the Bible thinking about a podcast and my Tuesday night Bible study and the three sermons I got to preach on the road this week and the question I got via email that I need to answer and the book that I'm writing. And you look down and I've been in the Bible five times for all this stuff. And then I realize I'm cumbered about with much ministry and I haven't just went to his feet and opened the word and said, just talk to me, Jesus, just you and me. Not so I can recycle it to tell somebody, but so that I can really deal with Paul. Because I have not been dealing with Paul. I've just been dealing with the church. I've just been dealing with my kids. Listen, I've just been dealing with my spouse. I've just been dealing with my church people. I've just been dealing with my, my boss. I've been dealing with my coworkers. I'm cumbered about with doing good stuff. But it's time to go talk to, to Jesus at the feet of Mary. And here's the beauty. In that, Jesus never says, Mary, Mary. But he says... Martha, Martha, which tells me that in the moment when I'm the most distracted, he loves me so much he calls my name twice. In the moment of my greatest distraction is the moment of my greatest opportunity for grace. In the moment of my greatest distraction, I shouldn't walk into condemnation and guilt and shame and say it's time to lay ministry down. Oh, no, no, I should respond to, Paul, to him going, Paul, Paul, I'm here. You and me, son. Just sit here. I'll do all the talking now. You've been doing all the talking all week long. You've been teaching. You've been writing. You've been doing. I'll do the talking. You do the listening. Just sit there and take it in. Paul, Paul, insert your name there and hear him saying to you, let's go, you and me. How do we manage distractions in a world full of distractions? We listen for the voice. It's not the fire. It's not the earthquake. It's not the wind that breaks the rock. It's the still small voice. It's the Jesus. And don't be condemned if you've been Martha. Hey, if there's no Martha, there's no meal. Listen, I tell myself that when it's time to go record a podcast or go study for a sermon. I go, hey, if you're not Martha right here, there ain't no meal. Somebody got to go make the meal. But what you need to do is work, 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 and listen. Because some point today, you're going to hear the Holy Spirit go, Paul, Paul. And when you hear that, lay it all down. Push it away and say, here am I, Lord. What do you want to say to me? It's our hope. It's your hope. He's calling your name twice today. 
a name so nice he says it twice. <laughs> a love that he has for you, so passionate, so involved. At the end of the story, it's all about Jesus. How? Because at the end of the story, it's about his passionate love for the people who are in need, who wonder if he even cares, who doesn't leave them when they're distracted with much serving, who says their name twice because he's so passionately in love with them. At the end of the story, it's not about Mary and it's not about Martha. It's about the Jesus that doesn't leave you in the midst of whatever it is that you bring to the table. It's the Jesus that keeps following you. It's the Jesus that keeps saying your name twice. It's the Jesus that's going to go to your car with you and go home with you. The Jesus that trails you, that stays with you, that says, Lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Yes, you're going to be distracted this week. Yes, you're going to be cumbered about, sometimes with secular things and sometimes with much serving. But I'll say your name twice. I'll keep walking this road with you. I'm so thankful that he doesn't give up on us. Even in the moments whenever we're so distracted, we forget his presence. Would you bow your heads for a moment? All I want to do is just pray over you right where you are. I don't have a special prayer. I don't have anything I want you to repeat. I just want you to listen. And I want to pray that you have a revelation that in the middle of whatever it is you're doing, he says your name twice. He calls you. Father, thank you. Thank you for what I count the greatest privilege that a person can have in the world, and that's to talk about Jesus. I thank you that I got to live that privilege today. I thank you for the good people in this room, for those around the world who might watch or listen to this. I pray right now, Father, that a work begin. I don't pray that the work end right now. I just pray that a work begin right now. I pray that a work begin where the seed of the word has dropped into the hearts of people who are admittedly distracted. Sometimes we're distracted in the secular world. Sometimes we're distracted in the ministry world. But we're all distracted sometime. We're all Martha once in a while. And Father, it's not to condemn us for being Martha. It's to give us hope. Teach us to listen for the sound of the Holy Spirit that calls our name that pulls us into relationship, that says this isn't about what you can recycle. This isn't about a song you can sing, a verse you can quote, a sermon you can preach. This isn't about doing for your neighbor. This is about listening to the voice of Jesus. Father, begin that work. Begin it. I say begin it because it doesn't end today. It just gets started. That when we walk out of this place, we begin to have an awareness of your voice calling us. And that sometimes we've got to lay the other stuff down so that we can be at your feet. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. If that's your prayer, say amen.